So Money episode 490, Coot Blackson, author of You Are the One. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Just about every investment and retirement plan is created by men for men, which is fine unless you're a woman. Women still earn less than men, for now. We're more aware of risk, we're more likely than men to pause our careers to raise a family, and unfortunately, we typically retire with less wealth than men, even though statistics show that we live longer. That's why there's Elevest, created for women, run by and designed by women. Elevest helps women invest based on their specific goals, like buying a home, starting a business, raising a family, or just retiring like a boss. So Money listeners can visit elevest.com slash so money and have an investment plan created at no cost, customized to your specific goals. Invest like a woman with Elevest. E-L-L-E-V-E-S-T. That's LFS.com slash so money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for joining me. And uh, you're going to love today's episode. We have a very charismatic, visionary, and transformational teacher, Coot Blackson is here. Coot was actually born in Ghana, son of a Japanese mother and Ghanaian father, who uh, was actually a spiritual leader and healer. And Coot began speaking at his father's congregation just eight years old, and by 14 was ordained to his father's ministry. But he knew that wasn't his life's calling. And instead of staying with the church, he went on to pursue his dream in the spiritual and self-help space. He has now created his own method called Liberated Living and has a trademark transformation experience where he offers clients a one-on-one trip to India for 14 days and a group process called Boundless Bliss, the Bali Breakthrough Experience. He takes clients on an intense journey to face their deepest fears and emerge reborn. Sounds like this could be a really good reality show. Earlier this year, he came out with a book, You Are the One. It's a reflection of his thoughts, his teachings, stories to help people access their true power. As a child, Coot witnessed what he calls miracles in his father's congregations. You know, people who were blind suddenly being able to see again, people who were crippled suddenly being able to walk again. How have those phenomenons, those miracles influenced the way that he now helps people? And can we expect miracles still in our lives? Was there a time when he felt he just couldn't help someone? And what did his instincts tell him to do? And Coot has lived among four continents to date. He shares his most fascinating money memories from traveling the world, as well as his own history of financial insecurity and how he dealt with it. Here's Coot Blackson. Coot Blackson, welcome to So Money. A pleasure to have you on the show. So great to be here. Been really uh, looking forward to hanging with you. I want to learn more about your new book, You Are the One. That's an amazing title, by the way. Yes. Um, but, you know, take us back. I, I think if I'm correct, maybe your journey of exploring life and uh, your own self-exploration started when you were around 14. And uh, I think it was the time when your father, who is a spiritual leader and healer, he announced to his congregation, 
um, uh, that you were going to basically follow in his footsteps and you didn't want to do that, which was a big, uh, almost like you, you became an adult at that point. You had to basically man up and tell your dad, mm-hmm. I want to do something different at a very young age. So take me back to that moment because I think that's, that's a, an obvious sign that you are a brave man, yeah. brave, a brave kid. Yeah, I mean, it, it started just a little before that because you know, from 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 the my very first memories around age five, age six, I felt a deep burning desire, you know, in my heart to serve people, to make a difference in people's lives. And uh, so, what happened was, age eight, I started speaking in my father's audiences. My father built three hundred churches in Ghana, West Africa. He had a huge church in London, so he threw me on stage one day at age eight and said, "Speak!" And uh, that was my, you could say, that was the beginning. To what did my, you say? You know what? I, I I was asleep on the front row, oh, no. <laughs> uh, like, like any you know kid would. And, so you were normal, okay? I, good. My my dad's church services were like six hours, okay? So all of a sudden, I get thrown on stage, and I don't, I, you know, I, I I tell people I honestly don't remember what I said. Words came through my mouth, but that was the beginning of my speaking career. And uh, so every month I would get thrown on stage and my father would say, speak. And so when I was 14, and by the way, I mean, I grew up seeing miracles. I'm talking blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, people standing up on wheelchairs. Uh, I remember being around that age and, you know, being a chubby kid lost in the crowd and, and seeing a crippled woman, literally, this is in Ghana, West Africa, literally crawling on the, on the floor, picks up the sand. My father walks and wipes it on her face and stands up. So that was, that was my, you know, uh, foundation and reality that anything was possible. So when I'm 14, my father basically announced to the church that uh, my son's taking over the ministries. He's going to be the successor. There were hundreds of thousands of people having their hopes on me and, and expectations for my life. And my father had certain expectations for my life of what he wanted me to be. And to be honest, I was... It wasn't right for me, but I was afraid. I was terrified. I knew the truth in my heart was something else. I knew the truth in my heart was to do it differently than him. But I I was afraid of disappointing him. I was afraid of being outcast. I was afraid of letting people down. I wanted to please people. And so I went along with it. And for about four years, I silenced my heart. I silenced my truth, which was extremely painful because I was afraid of the consequences, you know. And uh, I think many times we're afraid of, you know, I think deep down we know the truth. But we're afraid of speaking the truth, maybe the truth being, you know, this relationship isn't quite right for me, or I'm not really in alignment with my job, or there's certain patterns or addictions or ways of being or things I'm doing that just a little misaligned with, with who I am. So it took me about four years. You, you, you said I was a brave person, but it took me four years uh, to, to muster up the courage to really say, no, this, this is not my truth. And uh, finally, when I was about, <clears throat> I'd say 17, had the conversation with my father uh, thinking that he would uh, never speak to me again for the rest of my life. and uh, But I looked into my future, Farnoosh, and I literally saw that if I followed his expectations for my life, everyone's expectations from, for my life, that I could be successful by everybody, by the world's standards. But if I didn't really have myself, if I didn't really have my own peace, my own sanity, my own inner integrity, then I had nothing. I'd be literally poor. I would, I would be a failure. So uh, that was, that was so painful that that reality was painful that I felt like I was kind of committing a, a suicide in my soul. And, uh, I decided nothing was worth compromising my essence, my truth, my knowing. And, uh, uh, took, 
took the leap off the edge and uh, spoke to my father. It was challenging. I was terrified all the way. He didn't say anything. We didn't speak for two years after that. Sometimes there's this idea like, oh, yeah, follow your purpose, follow your path. And, you know, uh, the angels and the music and the violins and the unicorns. And it was challenging. I think sometimes when we when we have a purpose and we follow our path, we are tested and we are challenged. And I think all those challenges, at least for me, uh, were like the, I would say the gymnasium, you know, the soul's gymnasium that really uh, uh, helped to sculpt my own character and uh, in, inner integrity and fortitude. So, And when the silence broke after two years, what, what was said? You know what? Uh, I was mad at my father for two years. I came to the U.S., two suitcases, knew no one, showed up with literally $1,000 and a dream. And I was pissed off. I was mad. I was angry. Um, I felt like he wasn't there. For me. I was mad at God. Finally, I came to a point of realizing, you know, me holding on to my anger, even though I think I'm right and justified is only causing me pain and causing me suffering and is, uh, disempowering me, you know? So I, I, I came to a point of actually forgiving my father. He had no idea. I forgave him. And I realized, you know what? No one owes me anything. God doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe me anything. And I felt I actually had to acknowledge my own uh, ungratitude to life, my lack of gratitude to life and my own um, sense of entitlement. And I realized how entitled I was thinking he owes me something. And the fact is, I, I, I kind of have to face the fact, Farnish, that he gave me life. And, and, and that really was enough. That was a blessing enough. And I came to such a place of forgiveness and love and appreciation for just who he was. I had to accept who he was. I had to accept the fact he wasn't going to change. And I had to also accept the fact that I loved him. He's my father and accept what he could give me, what he couldn't give me. And I forgave him completely and with no expectations that he would be different. Literally, I kid you not, a week later, he calls me up and he says, uh, we need to speak. And I said, wow, I, I couldn't believe it. I thought, wow, I, I let go. And somehow, you know, if we believe that the sense of like outer experience is a reflection of our inner reality, I didn't try to change him because I think so often we try to change what's out there and we try to control people and situations. But really what we can shift is are the inner blocks, the inner stories, the inner dialogue, the stuff inside of ourselves. And I realized as I changed myself, uh, he shifted somehow and it creates a shift in him. And, and he said, son, I love you. And I, and I, and, and I miss you. And I, I think we need to talk. And I just, this was the first time I heard him say outright, I love you. It was, it was, it was like, it was amazing. And uh, it was profoundly healing. And that's what began the road to healing with my father and, and a deep uh, connection and respect. It was, it was a beautiful moment. It's very beautiful to hear that, uh, parent-child dynamic can grow so much even after adulthood and that mm. the child can be the one to forgive. I think if more people could take a lesson out of that book that you just experienced of, you know, how to cope and how to you know, thrive in a parent-child relationship when there is disagreement and um, some resentment, perhaps. It's it's not often that we hear the children say, I, was, I decided to be the bigger person. Yeah. Yeah, I think we have to, you yeah. know, I, I think what I had to give up and I think what we often have to give up is, is the sense of like, Hey, I'm right. Uh, the sense of, I, I felt I was right. I was in my own righteousness and I was right to a degree. There were th certain realities where he wasn't around. He didn't show up. He wasn't X, Y, Z of what I would love a father to be. 
And uh, I was stuck in my own righteousness. And I had to ask myself, do I want to be right or do I want to be free? And I realized my freedom was, was, was way more important. And it doesn't really serve him, anyone else, uh, by holding on to this. And I think many times we hold on to this thinking, well, if I hold on to this, I'm going to punish the other person. If I hold on to this, I'm going to prove to my parents how much they screwed me up or mm-hmm. the impact they had on me. And, and it's kind I'll of- show them. I'll show them, you know? And, and all it does is it, it affects us. Uh, it inhibits our own ability to create our future uh, the way we want it. So uh, we have to be willing to let go and and release and forgive. I can't and stop thinking. Me. I can't stop thinking about what you said earlier that you have witnessed miracles. Yes. <laughs> How has that impacted your teachings now? Wow. Your book is called "You Are the One." So literally, I feel that you are teaching people that it's all up to you. Mm. You are your own savior. But Mm. then you also had this past life where you experienced unexplainable things Mm. happening to people, healing them, saving their lives. So how do you reconcile that? How do you maybe work that into your uh, lessons today? Yeah, I I did, you know, acknowledge I saw profound miracles. Often people say, did that really happen? You know, because we often only see it on television. But I saw it as a kid with my own eyes week after week after week after week after week, these huge miracles. And, And the truth is... They were amazing. They are amazing. You know, they are incredible. And, you know, somehow I often thought as a kid, how did we lose touch with the fact that it's available to us all? And and for those that think, wow, that's so out there, I think if we just allow ourselves to even become present and aware and conscious of our breath, if everyone right now listening just becomes conscious of our breath to feel the fact that inside of us right now, we don't have to look outside. We don't have to go to the Himalayas. We don't have to go to some temple. We don't have to do anything just to become present and aware of the fact that there is a, a force, an intelligence, call it whatever you want. Doesn't matter the label you put on it. There is an intelligence that is living and breathing us. There, that to me is a, is, is a miracle in and of itself. So if I, I say to those people, if you're looking for a miracle, just look inside. We are being breathed right now. We are being lived right now. The same force that birthed creation, the same force that is, is shining the sun and the moon and the oceans and, and moving the oceans and, and breathing all seven billion human beings and all of existence, whatever that is, is the same intelligence that is living us and processing, digesting our food and, and enabling us to even have this conversation and those listening. It's, that's, that is a miracle. And I think we lose touch with that sometimes. But when we really bring our awareness to that reality that we are being breathed and lived by some intelligence and a force of life, I think we, we start tapping into the the abundance of our being. We start tapping into the, the, the unlimited resource that is inside of us. And then I think we access our real power. So I think we, we are miracles, each and every one of us, but we've forgotten that. And uh, I think when we forget who and what we are, we live in scarcity. When we forget who and what we are, we live in fear, we live in insecurity. But when we tap into the, the power inside of us, I think we, we, we not only connect with who we are, but we live in abundance. We live in, we, we live in power. We live in freedom. So, so for me, I think that recognition is the recognition going back to you are the one is realizing, Hey, you are that, you are that force. You are that intelligence. You are the one, not just you are the one as, you know, Farnoosh or Coot or, or our stories or Jim or Susie, not just that egoic one, but you are the one 
you are the same one that is living life. And I think to me, that's, that's really what it's about ultimately. And, and so I really believe though, that the, 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 the real miracle isn't just these esoteric out of the world things, but our ability to be ourselves. The real miracle for me was my ability to forgive my father. The real miracle is being able to just look at someone in the eyes and say, Hey, I love you. I appreciate you. The real miracle are just often those, 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 the, the recognition of the beauty of life and even some of the mundane things of life. And I think when we bring a level of awareness and attention and consciousness to moment to moment experiences of our life, often which we take for granted, uh, the mundane transforms into miraculous, you know, just even being able to drink water or taste ice cream or have an orgasm or, you know, see the sun and, and the moon and, and feel the wind. I mean, these are, these are miracles that we, we somehow like take for granted, but it, they're, they're really amazing. You know, they're really amazing. So shifting gears to money, you already mentioned your thoughts on abundance. I completely agree. And I just did a story for Oprah magazine. It's coming out later this year on how, when you feel gratitude and when you can rethink money as not just dollars and cents, but this thing of gratitude, this thing of abundance, and yes. you, you kind of replace the word rich with fulfillment and abundance and things that are, I think resonate more with human beings, um, that you can start to accept more into your life. And uh, it does lead to better, healthier decisions, financial and other. So uh, all this to say, Coot, what would you say is your overarching money philosophy? Do you have one? You know, I haven't really thought about it. But as I think about it, I really feel that for me, abundance is not just about what you have, I think so much of, you know, the philosophy in our world is about material, the stuff that you have, your bank account, which I think also is absolutely important because we live in the world as human beings. But I think for me, at the deepest foundation, I believe that real abundance is, is being in touch with who I am, the infinite source of my being, uh, at that spiritual level. Cause I think we can have it all, but if we don't have, who we really are, that real connection, that we are infinite beings beyond just this physical form, then I think we're poor. So to me, prosperity abundance is not just about what we have, but it's also about how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about what we have. You talk about gratitude. So for me, it's it's a state of being. You know, I've worked with several billionaires and, and, and very successful people who have so much money beyond that they could never spend it in for 20 lifetimes. And and they're miserable. And I would say they're poor in a sense. So, so for me, it's, it's really about how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about what we have. And uh, having traveled to some of the poorest parts of the world into some of the slums in India, I, I've seen folks that literally make, you know, $100 a month and they are so abundant. And it's not about the amount of money, but it's about how they feel. It's about where their focus is. It's about where their attention is. But it's also, I think, um, the fact that they are being in some level of service to those around them. So I think it's about how we feel about ourselves and, and what we have. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 84 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer-made customizable templates to choose from. The drag and drop editor. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix. 
Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy, too busy, too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your website today. The result is stunning. Culturally, you've experienced many differences. I would be curious to hear your take on the financial differences that the different cultures you've experienced have um, in terms of how maybe growing up in Africa, what what did money mean to people there in in the UK? Uh, you've uh, now lived in LA for a very long time. LA is a is it's like its own planet. Um, you know, uh, share some of those. You know, maybe if there's anything that stands out about how wildly different the your own personal experiences with currency and money and conversations around money with with locals in those in those parts of the world. I think that would be really fun to hear. You know. Uh- I, th- I think India impacted me a lot in a, in a very simple way because I remember uh, spending time with with a friend of mine who was a shopkeeper, and ev- I remember everything he earned, he gave to his father, and he gave to his family, and it and so much of it wasn't just about what he could get and what he could use for himself and what he could buy, and it really wasn't about him. I, and and spending time in India, I felt I felt a lot of that uh, uh, the, the the way uh, people perceive money was really for sharing and community. And I remember him saying, look, it really, what, what really impacted me about what he said was he said, look, when I make money, my parents gave me so much growing up. They, they loved me. They gave me, they clothed me that now everything I have is, is, uh, is also, you know, intended to be cycled back to them. And I just thought, you know, I never thought about it that way. Cause growing up, you know, pretty much in, in, in the U S from when I was 18, uh, I think there's a much more individualistic nature in terms of making money, which is for ourselves and for my family. And, and I think in, in places like India and Bali, it's much more community based, you know, it's not just about me, my kid, my family, but also for the community and to, and money is to be shared for the community and for a bigger a sphere of community than just, you know, a localized sense of self. And I think for me, that taught me a lot and, and, uh, that allowed me and inspired me to expand my own uh, perception and my own thinking around money and how money can be used beyond just, you know, what I want and what I can gain. So mm-hmm. that was something beautiful. Did, what was your earliest lesson about money growing up as a kid? Would you say? My earliest lesson, honestly, was probably, uh, not a great one. Uh, it was probably something like, you know, there's not enough money to go around. Uh, and, and my earliest memory was there was always one of, I would say, scarcity. And, and I think that's something I had to really work with myself to overcome because for the longest time, uh, there was always the sense of scarcity. And even when I came to the US, I had nothing. And there were times where Farnoosh, I was literally, I had, I had so little money that I was walking through supermarkets, stealing bread, trying to eat. And, and so, even when I started making money. It's like the start of Les Miserables. 
Yeah, I mean, I would. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I would. I would sit around for an hour, Farnoosh, thinking, should I spend one dollar in the Chinese, you know, in the Chinese uh, fast food restaurant for 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 rice, or should I just kind of go to the supermarket? I mean, it was like a major financial decision at that time, you know. And and, and but what was interesting is even when I started making money, like a lot of money. That for for a period of time, there was still this voice in my head. There was still this thing of of still not feeling. Mm, is there going to be enough? Am I going to survive? So I realized it wasn't just about how much I made. It was about my relationship with money inside of myself and the scarcity conversation within myself that I really got to to look at, to observe, to question. And I realized those voices, those fears, they weren't even though I was experiencing them as mine. They actually weren't real. They actually weren't mine. They belonged to my mother. You know, they belonged to my father. They weren't Mm -hmm. actually mine. And I didn't know that I had to question. Sometimes we think just because we have a thought, you know, the mind's very interesting. It's kind of the mind itself is conditioned. And and we think just because a voice, just because a thought is in my mind, uh, it's real. And I think we have to start realizing, well, just because a thought is in our minds doesn't mean it's real. Just because a story is flowing through our minds doesn't mean it's real. So we have to start questioning. So I had to start questioning, like, is that true? Can I know that for sure? I had to start looking at where did I, where did I get that belief? Where did I get that belief around money? I it traced it all the way back to my mother and some of the conversations I had with her around the dinner table and, and some of the things she said. And none of these were like overt. They were, some of them were so subtle. I didn't even realize it until I started really investigating my consciousness and questioning whose voice is this, who, who, whose belief is this, and that's when I I started to, uh, to 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 be able to become conscious and aware and let go of some of those conversations, you know, and and move my brain and myself out of the sort of psychology of just survival all the time. And it didn't matter if I was making a thousand dollars a week or you know. $50,000 a week. It, it, it honestly made no difference. There was, it was never enough. It was, there was always, Oh my God, how am I, how am I going to survive? So, so that had to shift for me. Uh, you always dreamed of coming to America though. You were raised all over the world, but you always wanted to have a life here. And when you came, did you feel it was everything you thought it was? Or, <laughs> or are you thinking maybe I should go back to oh India God. or the UK or UK, I don't know. Yeah. How, how is it rank? How's it stacking up? Yeah, I had, you know, I knew I was going to come to the US from 14 because all of the self-help gurus, some of whom you've interviewed, we've all know them, you know, the, the pop psychology group, they all lived in Southern California. So I had this vision and this dream, this burning dream of coming to the US and finding them. And I had this romantic idea, right? And, and so, uh, when I finally, I won a green card in the lottery. And to me, you know, I'd say, how's that for destiny? I won this green card and I showed up, two suitcases, and uh, asked, I asked a shuttle bus. I knew no one in L.A. And I asked a shuttle bus guy, a taxi guy, to take me somewhere safe and cheap where I could stay for a few weeks. He takes me to Venice Beach. I don't know if you know Venice Beach 18 oh, yeah. years ago, but it was, a li- it was a little edgy and dodgy, to say the least. A little different from conservative London. Drops me off. <laughs> I-, I cried for two weeks. Like a ba- like a ba- honestly like a baby. Where did you stay in a? Sh- in a- I, no, here's the deal. I, I stayed uh-huh. in a place called Venice Beach. Check this hotel. That's with a C. That's not hotel, Vanush. That's not motel. What does the C stand for? It's a hotel. I mean, I don't even know what the hell hotel. Hotel. But it's uh, it gives you a sense that it wasn't like a fancy place. You know, it was like a dormitory place, but it cost me, I think, eighteen dollars a night, and I was with some of the crazy people from around the world, and felt so out of place. I'd go to the beach and I'd cry, cry myself. 
feeling so homesick, but I felt this burning desire in my soul that was bigger than me. It was like I had a dream. And I believe that, you know, I feel like our dreams choose us. We think we choose our dreams, but our dreams choose us and our dreams choose us because we are the perfect person to fulfill those dreams. And I think our dreams are bigger than us and those dreams that we have, whatever it is, a business we want to create, a book or a product, whatever it is, I think those dreams choose us and they're bigger than us and they are the way that life wants to manifest through us. So I had this dream of speaking and teaching and, and inspiring people. You know, I was a kid in London when I was 14, 13 years old. We, were, we, were, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. You know, we had a lot of love, but not a lot of money. We had a, I literally grew up in an apartment next to my father's church, behind my father's church. My dream was to speak. So I would sneak out of my father, of, of my, tiny little eight by 10, you know, bedroom in the darkness, Farnoosh. And I would literally speak to the empty chairs in the darkness in the middle of the night for hours speaking, giving seminars to empty hundreds of empty chairs night after night after night, imagining and visualizing and dreaming I was in the U.S. So when I first came to the U.S., it was tough. It was nothing like what I thought. Um, it was it was very challenging, very difficult, but but it was it was the knowingness. You know, I remember when I first got my apartment. It was a two hundred fifty dollar a month apartment uh, near downtown on the edge of Koreatown. I had nothing. I was I was sleeping on a mattress. I dragged off the street, but I felt so free. I felt like even though I had nothing, I had. I had my integrity. I had myself. I felt like I was in alignment with my soul. And it didn't matter if I had no one. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't hard, but I felt the rightness. I felt the alignment of, of, of how I was living my life, that I wasn't compromising my essence. And that was the freest feeling uh, I can explain that I had. It was, ama- it was an amazing thing. So when you were suddenly making more money and, mm. uh, you know, <clears throat> how, how did that happen? How did that evolve? And what would you say was your so money moment, you know, a time where you just felt that you had all your hard work had paid off. You, uh, you know, you'd made a quote unquote, a lot of money or, but it was just a, you know, a really proud financial moment for you. You know, um, it was, it was, it was a slow process because I started, my life has never been about making money. I come from uh, parents that their entire life is pure, like Gandhi-esque, being of service to humanity. And that is like, they are like legends in terms of service, pure service. And so money never drove me. It was always mission. And I was never money focused. And and so, you know, as I started coaching people one-on-one, I, I didn't care about them. I just wanted to transform lives. And, I, and, and so for me, the focus was always, if I'm honest, uh, it was never about, let me make money, business, marketing. How can I, my focus has always been, how can I truly serve another soul? And it started off with one person. I radically, underscore radically transformed one person's life. And then he referred another person. And for me, it was never about making money. It was about how can I add radical value to people's lives? And I believe that money, what I observed was for me, money is a function of adding value. I think when we chase money, it, it, it's, it's never really fulfilling. But when we add value, I think when we're able to add value uh, and part of how we add value is we, we can you know, uh, solve a problem for someone in some way, a, a challenge that they're going through. 
then I believe money is a natural byproduct of that. And so for me, it was about helping people transform where they were stuck in their lives. It was helping people go from A to B. It was helping people really let go of limitations. And that was valuable for them. So at the more value I added to their lives, I found uh, in proportion, the more money I made, the more people showed up, the more I was able to charge. And it just grew and it just grew. But but it was it was really driven for me with the pure like crazy intention and radical, you know, unrelenting intention to have people be free, to have people connect with who they are. And because I felt like if, if someone was able to experience that freedom, not only would they tap into their power, but they could create anything from that place that they wanted. So the more value I added, the more money I made. And it just grew. Varnoosh, one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And then I started making videos and that grew and wanted to add more. I started adding value to people's lives that way. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's just kind of grown uh, by being of service and adding value. And that's been my key, being of service and adding value and as a result, uh, developing a relationship with people and a community around the world, and and uh, and then my seminars and my events and and what have you, and now the book. So so uh, yeah, yeah, it's just it's just unfolded. So you know, for me, money money is energy, and it comes and it goes, and and I feel like money is. It's not just to be accumulated, but because I think none of it we take with us. I remember going to Egypt and seeing going to the, the pyramids and they said, well, this is where Tutankhamun was buried and this is where all his gold was. And then I went to the Cairo Museum the next day and I looked around the entire floor dedicated to Tutankhamun's gold trinkets and his bling and his stuff. And I, and I, I remember having this moment going, he's dead. Right. His gold is here. Tutankhamun's dead. His gold is here. And it was like this mind-blowing simple moment. I realized we don't take anything with us. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't enjoy it and cars and homes. And it's beautiful. It's all a celebration of, of, you know, abundance on every level. But I think, uh, <clears throat> none of it we take with us. So I feel we, we, money is simply a, a delivery system. Money is a, is energy. And to me, money is, is to be circulated, to be of service to people, uh, and, and to add value to people's lives also. So, do you ever uh, feel like you failed someone though, that there was someone that you could not help? I, I can't imagine that everybody can be helped because to, to a certain extent, you have to be able to help yourself. And, and so, and sometimes people's experiences, I don't even know where to begin. You know, I like to think that I can help people with all of their financial issues, but sometimes it's just bigger than what I can do for them. Have you ever felt it? it when you, if you are ever in that situation, mm. what, what does your instinct tell you? You know, I would say I have never failed anyone by not doing my part. I've always done my part, which is given everything I can to a client, to a person and given them everything. But I believe that people don't shift and we don't change unless we really want to change. And many times we don't want to change. Many times there's an unconscious payoff we have for staying stuck. And we say we want to transform and we, we, we've convinced ourselves we want to transform, but it's often a lie. And I think part of what we have to do, which many people don't, is we don't acknowledge the reason we actually don't want to change. And I think the more we can be honest and tell the truth to ourselves in terms of this is why I actually don't want to shift this relationship. This is why I actually don't want to shift this pattern. This is why I actually don't want to be more abundant. You know, I have so many people that come to me and say, could I, I want to make more money. I want to make more money. I want to make more money. And, and deep down, 
they say they do on one level, but deep down, subconsciously, unconsciously, emotionally, they don't. I had this client one time. This this might kind of speak to what you're saying. And she was born in a Latin family from Cuba. They all, you know, came over. They they escaped and they they took refuge in the U.S. And but she grew up her entire life hearing how hard it was back home. The people back home, back home, back home, and and the struggle. And it was all about the struggle, the struggle, the the unity of the family. And and so she came to me saying, "Could I can't make money? I just money." It comes and it just slips through my hands. It's like water. I I can't keep it. I, I make tons of money and it's all gone. I don't know where it goes. And somehow it just, I just get rid of it and it's driving me crazy. And I just, I want to be successful. I want to make money. And I looked at her and I said, no, you don't. She looked at me like, what do you mean? I said, you actually don't. Now tell me the truth. Tell me the truth as to why you don't. We have to be willing to confess the truth. So why don't you want to make money? Give me all the reasons. And as she started going down, she hit one that was very emotional for her. And what it was, was her honest confession, uh, unconscious sort of uh, 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 confession and payoff that if I make money, if I'm successful, if I break free to the next level of abundance and prosperity, then I will, I will be betraying my tribe. I'm going to be betraying my family and I'll no longer be a part of my tribe. And, and their entire identity was staying together and the struggle and, and how difficult it was and, and her way of unconsciously, you could say, fitting in and being loved by the tribe and her father was being poor not being too successful, not making too much money. And I think we have to be willing to acknowledge the payoff as to why we don't want to transform so that we can deal with that in order to be able to transform. And many times we don't. So uh, the question I also ask people if they're stuck is what is it you want more than anything else? Because I believe if you want to transform more than anything else, I mean more than anything else, we say we do, but what do you want to transform more than anything else? If we really want to transform more than anything else, nothing will stop us. We still may have to face whatever the resistances are between where we are and where we want to go and, and deal with those resistances, whether they're conscious or unconscious. Like if, like if, if, if let's say I stuck someone's head underwater, you know, I'd ask them, if your head was underwater right now and you couldn't breathe, what would you want more than anything else? You wouldn't want diamonds. You wouldn't want chocolate. You wouldn't want a Lamborghini. You wouldn't, you, know, you, you would just want to be able to breathe. You would want air. So I think when we really want to transform more than, more than anything, like, like we would want air, nothing stops us. So I think we have to get to that stage. Cute Blackson, you are unstoppable. Thank you so much for coming by. And um, tell us what you have lined up in the fall if we want to follow you. We know we, where we can find you online, yes. Facebook, Instagram, your YouTube videos. Um, but if you ever, are you doing a, a tour right now? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just uh, finished up New York and uh, just traveling, traveling, going to India, going to Bali and doing some events in Los Angeles in October. Have you, Folks, you can find out about uh, my events uh, on my website, coopblackson.com. And, and uh, just uh, it's great to be here, Farnoosh. Really just you're beautiful. I feel your heart and soul doing amazing work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I'm wishing you all the continued success you rightfully deserve, Coot. Congratulations on You Are The One. And we're going to have all those links as well on So Money Podcast. Thank you and be well. Much love. 
Thanks again to Coot for joining us on So Money. If you missed any of this or want to download the transcript, the audio, leave a comment, head over to somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, leave me a comment or a question by clicking on Ask Farnoosh, and then I'll uh, I'll put that over for the Friday episodes. And if you want to see more of Coot and maybe in person, go on one of his trips or experience him online, go to cootblackson.com. He's also on Twitter at Coot Blackson. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone, and I hope your day is so money. Money.